Good. Um, so we're recording a conversation. We've been talking for a while, or kind of a long while, actually, right? About recording our conversations uh, with each other and with other people down the line, which I think is a, it's, it's an exciting prospect to me. I'm glad to be doing it. Um, you'd sent me um, this essay, Symbol of the Archaic by Guy Davenport, and I thought it was thrilling and really interesting. And it touched on, it was clarifying for me, and I think you'd said it was clarifying for you. And um, uh, we were interested in talking about it with each other. Um, what can you tell me about Guy Davenport? I've read a little bit about him, but I, I've mostly kept my eyes off his biography just so uh, I could hear directly from you what his deal yeah. is. Yeah, he's an, he's an interesting guy. He was one of these sort of like 20th century polymaths that uh, were products of what was then the sort of classical education of the time that sort of no longer exists. And he also has this fun quality of, you know, all of these great writers from America in the 20th, in the 20th sort of late late 19th and early 20th century were all from like the provinces, right? Like uh, William Faulkner and uh, Fitzgerald and, you know, Hemingway was from Oak Park, Illinois, which at that time wasn't really a Chicago suburb. Um, and Davenport was from uh, Anderson, South Carolina, which at the time he was born in like the 1920s. It was like a little town of like 10,000 people. He studied classics and English at Duke. Uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar and he went off to Merton College at Oxford and studied English under J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, he has, he's got this really a couple of really great stories where he writes about being a student of Tolkien. Uh, he's very, very enamored with Tolkien as like this kind of bumbling, absent-minded professor type who's just brilliant. Um, uh, he, he wrote a thesis on Joyce, which I think at that point was one of the earliest sort of academic pieces of academic writing on James Joyce, who was, uh, had pretty much been dismissed by the Academy for a long time. Um, in the 1950s, he spent a couple of years in the Army back here in the States. Uh, when he got out of the Army, he taught for a while at Washington University in St. Louis, and then he went on to do a PhD at Harvard. And this is really where his, his career start, it takes this interesting turn, because he meets Ezra Pound, who is at the time an inmate at St. Elizabeth's uh, Insane Asylum. And he meets Ezra Pound. He befriends Hugh Kenner, who uh, Kenner was one of the earliest um, sort of like academic defenders of Joyce's poetry, or not Joyce, sorry, uh, Pound's poetry. Um, he writes a book called The Poetry of Ezra Pound in like the, I want to say like the 1950s or something like that, where he uh, really is engaged in this really sort of single-handed quest to incorporate Ezra Pound into the canon of English letters and also really make him a defining figure of modern English literature, not just American, but, you know, sort of any literature written in English. Um, so Davenport's at Harvard. He does a dissertation on the cantos. And I've, it's published into a book now called Cities on Hills. It's like a, you know, he just kind of considers it a close study of the first 30 cantos. And I read the introduction, and it, while reading it, was trying to imagine what it would be like to be this guy's dissertation advisor because it's just absolutely brilliant. Like, uh, very clearly Davenport from a very early age was just a genius and a freak. Um, and, 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 I mean, you get a sense of this when reading this essay. Uh, but, to, but to continue... Uh, I mean, the last years of his life, basically, you know, he had this really exciting time um, at Harvard studying Ezra Pound and meeting all these people. And then he graduated, immediately took a job at University of Kentucky in Lexington to get away from the excitement of everything. And then spent the rest of his life living in Lexington, Kentucky, never driving a car, walking around <laughs> and teaching English at University of Kentucky. Um, 
He got a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1990, which stimulated a retirement. He died about 10 years later. But yeah, really, I mean, he really didn't like, after, you know, after he started working at University of, uh, University of Kentucky in the 1960s, his life stopped being exciting, and he just wrote an enormous amount of essays and literature and poems. And It's a beautiful life. Yeah, it really is. And and, and he's remembered, I think he, there's kind of a living memory of him in Lexington. There are a couple of people who are students of Davenport's who are still out there kind of studying. This guy, Eric Reese, um, who's like an environmental writer, who's a student of Davenport's and also a friend of Wendell Berry. Um, Davenport got really invested in like environmental writing and environmentalism, um, albeit not quite in the same sense as Wendell Berry. But uh, so he, you know, he has this kind of agrarian dimension of his personality his project that really clicked with some other people in, in, in Lexington. But yeah, there, you know, people still remember him from there. Yeah. I lived in Lexington for a year. Um, okay. And I guess one of the things, one of the things that really interested me about Davenport is that I just have this really almost like um, jingoistic fixation on Kentucky, which is a place that I deeply love <laughs> um, from there. And I love uh, when people are from there and they're freakish geniuses. So that was one of the things that really drew me to this. A friend recommended that I read this particular essay. And then he said, oh, he lived in Lexington. And I was like, reading that. And it turned out to be great. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what's in what's actually in this particular essay. It's called The Symbol of the Archaic. Um, do you want to give us a rundown of, of your take on it, Kent? I can definitely try. It, it turns out to be a little bit of a, a love letter to Pound in, in my reading at least, right? It's, it's, it sort of opens with its description of this, the rib of an ox that was discovered in uh, France, I guess, four years prior to the essay's composition. Um, sort of various estimates that have it uh, 100,000 to 230,000 years old. And it sort of moves on from musing on it to talk about Petra and the discovery of Petra and its immediate impact on the arts and the literature. And then to a broader discussion of ruins in general and, and develops into this sort of conversation about um, – I take it to be a conversation about modernism in, in a technical sense, or literary modernism. Right? And, and I'm not 100 percent sure that's what he's getting at, but my sense is that he's suggesting that modernism proper is a kind of second renaissance, um, but it's a renaissance of – it's prehistories. It's sort of the uncovery, it, partly the discovery and partly the sort of invention of prehistory. Mm-hmm. Um, so and he sort of he moves around, right? Uh, Joyce, uh, Pound, Picasso, Charles Olson, right? Um, and this place of, of ruins and also those cultures of prehistory mm-hmm. and the, the sort of shift of consciousness that comes about through the discovery of prehistory um, on sort of modernism as a as a style or something like that. Does that sound about right? Does that track with your reading of the of the piece? Yeah. Well, it, it, there's this kind of curious ambiguity about whether it's a shift in consciousness that follows from the discovery of prehistory or whether it's a shift of consciousness that allows for the discovery of prehistory. And that's right. one of the things that I find so so thrilling about the essay is that he's yeah he's writing about sort of the origins of literary modernism. But then also, in a, but also modernism, modernism in a broader sense, right? He he has this amazing Moder- passage. Modernity, part yeah, moder- modernity, modern science, right? I mean, he's he's really interested in in modern science and philosophy. He has this amazing short passage. Let me see if I can find it. Where he talks, yeah, he he talks about how something happens in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century that reopens for us ways of thinking and seeing that had been buried under. Something or he doesn't really give it a name, but it's something like 
you know, kind of like the, the traditional philosophical and artistic modes of consciousness or something that had sort of had a stranglehold on things. I mean, in, in a certain sense, it reminds me a little bit of like Bacon's new organon or something where Bacon says, oh, yeah, you know, we've been buried under Aristotle for however many thousands of years. And right. it turns out that there was always this other possibility that was available to us that we're just going to do now. And he has a similar kind of thing. Um, I'm going to read this passage kind of from the middle of it. He says, what is most modern in our time frequently turns out to be the most archaic. The sculpture of Brancusi belongs to the art of the Cyclades in the 9th century B.C. Corbusier's buildings in their cubist phase look like the white clay houses of Anatolia and Malta. Plato and Aristotle somehow mislaid the tetrahedron from among Pythagoras' basic geometric figures. Rediscovered by Buckminster Fuller, the tetrahedron turns out to be the basic building block of the universe. Pythagoras said that where two lines cross, the junction is two lines thick. Euclid said that lines can cross infinitely without any thickness at all. Buckminster Fuller constructs his tensegrities and geodesic domes with a firm notion that at their junction, crossed lines are two lines thick. And then this, this is the thing that I remember when I first read this, this essay, I just about threw the book down and left with joy because this, this passage just made so much sense to me. He says, Fuller then is our Pythagoras. Niels Bohr is our Democritus. Ludwig Wittgenstein is our Heraclitus. There is nothing quite so modern as the page of any of the pre-Socratic physicists where science and poetry are still the same thing and where the modern mind feels a kinship it no longer has with Aquinas or even Newton. So, yeah, there's this... I think what he's trying to track here is that there's some kind of breaking open that happens in the turn of the centuries that really, yeah, yeah, that, as you said, sort of const constitutes a genuine renaissance, this, this sort of rebirth of, of a kind of beginning before the beginning, right? You know, so um, Plato and Aristotle are seen to be the beginnings of philosophy, right, for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And then something happens, and then Heraclitus and, uh, you know, and, and Anaximander and so on and so forth, and Parmenides are sort of like experiences with this rebirth, right? We, you know, we, we sort of move our attention to these people that existed before Plato and Aristotle and start to become curious about them. Euclid is hailed as the sort of founder of mathematics, but then something happens and, and then these things that Pythagoras had said suddenly become sort of rediscovered, right? That the, the, the thickness of the two, two lines that cross are two lines thick at the crossing point, you know, just really weird stuff. Right. But it's, it's, this is facilitated in part by a re like a concrete rewriting of the timeline of history, right? He makes the point that, um, in, in Burkhart's poem, who, who discovered Petra, I guess, he wrote a poem on Petra, which is sort of off-quoted. Um, he calls it half as old as time, right? And that Stonehenge was long assumed to be Roman ruins, right? And so there's this sort of like, mm -hmm. this is in part facilitated by the the breaking open of the timeline of history, right? The discovery or, or whatever it is of prehistory um, allows for... The classical period stops being this... Um, floor of of the historical timeline right mm -hmm. and there's a sense in which right like the, the the renaissance that happens in modernity or or sort of it's coterminous with modernism or whatever it is what it allows for is a seeing of these things with new eyes right that mm -hmm. like that there's this realization that right so so for picasso Brancusch is cycladic and stravinsky is a primitive russian and Accordingly, the, the the horse paintings, the cave paintings in Lascaux, 
because we're the first peoples to set our eyes on it, they're the most modern of art, right? Mm-hmm. Cave painting becomes a sort of uh, a, a form of modern art. Right, so he has this passage where he's, he's sort of musing on Charles Olson's um, thoughts on the epsilon uh, mm-hmm. that's carved on the stone at Delphi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for Olson, the import of that conical ancient stone was precisely that it is so ancient that we have lost the meaning of the writing upon it, right? That, like, mm-hmm. the, what it means is its fragmentariness, right? What it means for us is, is the meaning that it impresses upon us. The meaning of the thing doesn't inhere in, in the... The carving itself and it's mm-hmm. at once this kind of like breaking open of the historical timeline but also this sort of collapse of it right where the the, the need to see meaning as inherent uh sort of dissipates um, i hope i'm sort of grasping something uh helpful about what's going on here yeah um the e on the stone thing is interesting so so olsen writes this i mean he has this amazing and really cryptic poem called the kingfishers that davenport loves deeply Right. Um, and Olsen, Olsen is interesting. Um, he is credited with being the first person to use the term postmodern oh, in, a letter, in a letter that he wrote to somebody. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure that might, that might be um, ap- apocryphal. You know, it, it might not actually be true, but I think that he's one of the earliest people to use this term. But um, he writes in, in the Kingfishers, it's this poem that's deeply obsessed with ruins. And he talks about, you know, the E on the stone uh, being a part of it. And it seems like what, what, what intrigues, Olson about that kind of thing and what, and, and what intrigues Davenport about Olson's interest in that kind of thing is that um, some, so, so right. The, when all these sort of like Renaissance writers and post Renaissance writers were looking at Stonehenge, they could only comprehend it as something that fit within the pre-existing understanding of history, the pre-existing understanding, uh, pre-existing understanding of human civilization and what it means to be a human being. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it was this whole worldview of anthropology, history, philosophy, so on and so forth, that's, that basically produced for them the idea that Stonehenge was something Roman, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't see it otherwise. Right. They looked, at the, they looked at the rocks and they said, oh, this clearly must be Roman because there are no other possibilities available to us, right? Um, and then something happens in the late 19th century. I mean, I, and, and this, all of this is coterminous with basically the, the creation of the disciplines of anthropology and archaeology, right? Um, right. right. At, yeah. at, the, at the end of the 19th century, people start to investigate ruins in a different way. People start to take a different kind of, inter- a different kind of interest in, in groups of people who don't seem to constitute civiliza- civilizations in the exact way, um, in, the, in, in the exact same way. So, uh, so Olson looks at this, at this rock and he becomes deeply interested in the fact that he cannot comprehend it. And Davenport looks at Olson and says, oh, that's interesting, right? Because in previous right. um, eras of, of sort of like Western thinking, to look at something like that, you would, uh, you would say, oh, I can, underst- I can understand the illness. And it means this, right? And it means this because I have this whole tradition of thinking and so on and so on and so forth. And, and there's something, there's some kind of, the kind of break that, or breaking open, I want to say, because break, break sounds negative, but there's a kind of breaking open that occurs in the turn of the century that allows for guys like Olson to recognize that they have no idea what's going on in these kind of like pre-historical civilizations or these kind of archaic objects that show up. Rather than impressing their 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 presuppositions on these things, they recognize the limitations of their own thinking and then reflect on it. And that, and, and Davenport is really, really interested in that move. 
Right. Absolutely. Right. That's kind of, it's the Nietzschean insight, right? It's the, it's the, it's, it happens in this interesting, I mean, he sort of notes this, right? That like Schliemann goes to, to Anatolia looking for Troy um, and he expects that all, everything that he'll find, it's residue of the, of the persons and places whose record, the records of which we've inherited. Right. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just this effort to go into the earth looking for, for what we're expecting to find that produces this new way of seeing. Right. Yeah, and I guess to, to, to expand on that and, and also to talk about the sort of limitation, the, the limitation of sight that existed before that, I, I really want to read this anecdote where he talks about um, the, the, the early discovery of the, of the cave paintings, right? He says, go back to the sarlat bone, right? That ox bone from the, from the beginning of the essay, possibly 230,000 years old with which we began. What would it have looked like to a 17th century antiquarian? John Aubrey, we remember, thought Stonehenge to be the ruins of a Roman temple, and his patron Charles was satisfied with this information. Um, and I'm going to mangle the French here, but when the Abbe Bruil petitioned UNESCO for funds after the Second World War to study the 20,000-year-old paintings in the Lascaux Cave near Montagnac, UNESCO refused on the grounds that the paintings were obviously fraudulent. He had encountered the same incredulity for 40 years, right? So these um, expert institutions, these expert people, right, studied academics and so on and so forth who constitute them, when they were presented with information that seemed to be contrary to the way that they understood history and civilization, they not only were incapable of understanding this kind of thing, but they they uh, they built up intellectual defenses, right? They rejected it. They said that the cave paintings were fraudulent because there's no way that prehistoric man would have made art. And this is where it can, and this is, I think, one of the greatest anecdotes that Devonport ever recounts here. He says, there was, however, a silent believer from the beginning of his career who saw prehistoric art with eyes which would influence all other eyes in our time. When Brill was copying the ceiling of bulls in the Spanish cave at Altamira, a young man from Barcelona crawled in beside him and marveled at the beauty of the painting, at the energy of the designs. He would in a few years teach himself to draw with a similar energy and primal clarity it would incorporate one of these enigmatic bulls into his largest painting, the Guernica. He was Pablo Picasso. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, that, I think one that shows uh, just Davenport's brilliance as a writer. Sure. Um, sure. He, he's capable of writing with this kind of novelistic tension and release that I, I, is, is very rare to encounter in, in, in an essayist. Um, yeah, it's simultaneously a work of great erudition and great craft. Um, and it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a pleasure, pleasure to read for that reason. Yeah, so, so, but the thing that he relates is really interesting, right? So there's this guy who discovers a cave painting, and mm-hmm. he takes this cave painting to a panel of experts, and those experts say, this is a lie, you suck, get out of my face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but never, but right, and then he, and then he claims here, and, I, and granted, I, I will say at this juncture, I've tried to look up this particular claim that Davenport makes about <laughs> Picasso as a young man crawling into a cave and painting the things. I mean, there was, there's, there's like Picasso definitely went and saw cave paintings. Um, But I have yet to be, I mean, I haven't read a biography of the man, so I'm not sure maybe it's in there somewhere, but I haven't found anything that really uh, confirms this particular anecdote, but it's still so good. Um, Sure. Yeah. And and I think even if it's a little bit fictitious, I think it really um, articulates Davenport's view of things very, very well, which is that, you know, the expert said, this is a lie. Um, this random, I guess, sort of like, you know, this Catholic priest guy who just happened to stumble upon this cave, his like dog fell into it or something. That's how he found it. Um, 
continued to go back to it, and he brought along people who were kind of like outside of the these expert panels and those people, and those people were able to see it. Mm. Um, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, but not the experts. Yeah. Yeah, and it also, I mean, at, at the very least, right, it speaks to the kind of gesture that, that Guernica is, regardless of, uh, of whether or not the, the, de- the biographical details are true, right? There's this, the artistic encounter he's describing is real. Yeah. Um, it, makes, it, make, it makes sense of the gesture of, of Guernica. Yeah, and likewise, likewise for Joyce and Pound, that, that this, I mean, that, that basically modern art is this rediscovery of a kind of, like, unadorned primal energy that is present and is like sort of clearly visible to us but was not clearly visible to previous civilizations that that, that basically the 20th century is the first century that is able to see this stuff for what it is he's very intrigued with that and then the and then 20th century artists take that energy from this early art imbue it into their into their writing in the present and that makes modernism right that's what modernism is. It's not, I mean, it's, I, I guess we should also say that like one of the things that I find really interesting and really challenging and really thought provoking about this essay is that I think both you and I are sort of parts of these milieu that, that you know, sort of clutch their pearls and holler about modernism. Right. Sure. Yeah, sure. But like, or some understanding of what modernism is. I mean, and I think this even takes place in art, right. That, um, you know, you were relating a, an anecdote to me earlier today about a, a guy that, you know, who, really kind of autistically in a discussion about abstract art was like, you know, I only care about realism, you know, cause that's the, that's the only real art or something. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah, that's, that's maybe worth relating. So I, I was having sure, yeah, yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> a friend of mine who's a giant of a man. Um, he trains uh, like cops and <laughs> special forces and stuff like that. Right. And he also, his, he's sort of a classicist by disposition, right? And and he was talking about how he was always dismissive of non-representational art until he encountered Cy Twombly's Iliad piece in the flesh, right? And he sort of recognized this poem that, he, that was embedded in his heart, right? He, he knew it really well. And he, he saw it reflected in this non-representational work that was clearly about it. Like he could read it for the first time. And it was an encounter that sort of sold him on artistic ab- abstraction. And this other, you know, sort of, sort of a, a trad character chimed in to say that he only likes realism, right? Which, like, I don't know what you would do with the Middle Ages if, yeah. <laughs> if that were really here. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, Twombly is an interesting <laughs> case in this respect. Yeah, that's that's a fair thing to note. Davenport seems to think that this energy has fizzled. Mm-hmm. I, I think he thinks that this. I mean, that's that's the thing that's a little bit a little bit difficult about it is is understanding exactly what he means by modern because the piece is largely about literary modernism, artistic modernism. But there are these. Uh, homages to the, the the notion that this is a it's about modernity as such, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that this the kind of sight that Picasso has, or the kind of sight that Pound has, um, has become rarer and rarer. We're not really living in the period he's describing, uh, as of seventy two or whenever this is written. Am, am I right to uh, to take that from the way the essay ends? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that well, one of the things that he says very explicitly on a number of occasions. Um, is that this renaissance of, of, of the archaic that happens in the early 20th century is immediately collapses. Um, right, right. That we have basically this, this new, you know, this, the, 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 discovery, the discovery slash invention of the archaic world opens up this entire new world of possibility, not only for art, right, not only for literature and painting and stuff, but yet again for Buckminster Fuller, for Wittgenstein, for philosophy, for science, for all this other stuff. And then the world wars break out. Right, 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 right. 
And he's not shy in saying that for him, the world wars constitute a destruction of civilization. It's like it, it, you know, culture no longer exists. Whatever, whatever thing existed that was called the West obliterates itself in the two world wars. Right. Um, and so it's this very like, it's this, you know, this, this, this period of immense promise um, where all of a sudden the archaic world opens up to us um, where all of these, you know, fascinating geniuses are, are deriving this, this energy from this art that nobody else has been able to look at before. And something, something entirely new becomes possible. And then war breaks out. Um, right. And then all those possibilities immediately become, become closed. And then art takes on this entirely different kind of character, um, right. so on and so forth. Um, I mean, it, you know, one of the other curious things about this, right? So, it, I mean, we're trying to figure out sort of what he means by modern. Um, and he spends a lot of time talking about the changes that happen in cities. Yeah, yeah. Which is really interesting. Um, and, and he, you know, he, he starts this by sort of reflecting on Eliot's wasteland. Um, and he says, oh, yeah, you know, Eliot was, was clued into a number of changes that are happening in urban landscapes with the creation of the automobile, right? Dav Davenport famously never learns how to drive. He walks all the time, and he absolutely hates cars. It's a, a really funny and um, endearing... A, yeah, the machine that stole the city's rationale for being. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, I, I really genuinely think for him that when, he, when he's talking about art, he's talking about everything. Yeah. That art is yeah. not just a sort of, like, limited... Do or, you know, like, that... that Art is a particular kind of activity, but it doesn't exist in this hermetically sealed, reified, sort of um, delineated sphere called art, it, but rather it is a witness to the entirety of culture. Right, right, right. And yeah. that's why he's interested in reading great artists, because they, they have an ability to see what's happening on the level of the whole and to, and to somehow transform that into, into language that nobody else is capable of. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you and I we've talked about this quite a lot, right? That that we're pretty skeptical of the idea that both of us that you know Bacon, for example, single handedly is responsible for the 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 way that modern technics operates or whatever, right? That the sort of just these like lineage of thinkers have um, single handedly sculpted our experience of the world or whatever. But there's a way in which they fit into this kind of continuum of um, imagining and picturing and shaping our experience. It's it makes a lot of sense to me as a way of sort of reading thinkers proper as, uh, on this as agents in history or something. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes a lot of sense to me, right? Yeah. Would, would you go back in time and kill baby bacon, right? That's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the question. And, and, yeah. I think, and I think both of us for a long time have been sympathetic to this idea that certain pieces of writing are immensely influential. Right. Um, well, I mean, I'm not even sure influential is the right word, but certain, certain things that have been written, certain artworks that have been created like completely reorganize society. They alter the way that everybody sees things. I mean, maybe not in a moment, but gradually over time, right? And this is, you know, Davenport says that, that Guernica is what allows for the rest of the West to see the primal energy of cave paintings. Mm. Um, and that guys like this do things like this, right? So in, in one sense, I think we're both really sympathetic to the power of the text. But in another sense, I think we're both very skeptical of, the text as being the sole power of the unfolding of history, right? And so, you know, yet again, I think, you know, in, in the back, of, well, at least in the, I'll, I'll speak for myself in this, in the back of my mind, I feel like when I read things, 
and I'm trying to comprehend the, the, the scope and um, shape of history, I am also constantly trying to sort of, I'm always kind of like uh, silently arguing against people who just say, oh, well, this guy did this thing. Yeah. You know, right. because this guy wrote this book, suddenly everything's bad because this, you know what I mean? And like, granted, that's, you know, that is a very, um, uh, I think potentially uncharitable inflection of a kind of art, of a kind of way of argumentation, right? Like, I guess I'm thinking here of like, you know, um, all these guys who yell about liberalism, right? For all these guys who yell about who yell about liberalism, it's like Hobbes destroyed the world or Locke destroyed the world or whatever, right? Um, well, ben the Benedict Option opens with an account of modernity that basically begins with Duns Scotus, right? The argument yeah. at the beginning of the Benedict Option is that Duns Scotus, um, in sort of like opening the way for nominalism, uh, like created trans people or something, right? Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> so you just got to go back in time and kill baby Duns Scotus. I mean, exactly. it's, it's so easy. Everything's I mean, fine, right? that's, the, that's, the, that's the answer to all of these things is that like, all you like all it turns into is would you go back in time and kill baby insert person who made everything bad mm -hmm. right um and i yeah and I, I think that both we, we are both very um critical you know we have certain sympathies with that but we're also very critical of that way of reading history and I, and, and that and this particular essay i think really allowed us to see better a different way of comprehending the sort of flow and shape of history. Texts as one set of windows on a continuum of, of many win windows into the way the order of things unfolds or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll admit, just to backtrack slightly, um, I'll admit that when I read that passage that you said you really liked about how Fuller's are Pythagoras and Bohr's are uh, Democritus and Wittgenstein's or Heraclitus. I sort of winced at it the first time I read it mm. because it wasn't. Sometimes you hear statements of uh, like this, and what they mean is that um, uh, dem uh, Democritian atomism has been vindicated by modern modern physics, right? Um, but I don't think that's what Davenport's saying. What I think Davenport's saying is that there's a something of the spirit of the the pre-Socratic enterprise, right? This idea of like of of trying to 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 grasp what being is or whatever right what the what the fundamental asking the fundamental question right the the possibility of asking the fundamental question has been was opened up bohr and von leeuwenhoek and wittgenstein or whatever have, have all seized this window of opportunity to to reimagine being or something like that right which is a window that was closed by the last you know 2000 whatever you know 2500 years of intellectual history or whatever yeah and, and li but, likewise right he doesn't i don't think he's claiming for instance that I don't think that Buckminster. It's possible Buckminster Fuller never once read Pythagoras or like had no sure. knowledge of like Pythagorean doctrines of anything. Likewise, I think there's pretty good evidence that Wittgenstein. I mean, Wittgenstein didn't read anybody. Like <laughs> he, he likely never encountered Heraclitus, and and I think that I think Davenport is aware of that, and that's sure. why he finds these figures so interesting because it is a it is like a, um, a kind of recapitulation of of a very early and forgotten way of thought and line of questioning even or something. Yeah. 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 Like, like what? Yeah, exactly. Line of questioning, a sort of style of thinking, a kind of, a kind of energy of engagement with the world, right? right? Something that's like very, that's like, it has less to do. Yeah. It, it, it has less to do, or I would say almost nothing to do with, with the specifics of articulated doctrines and more to do with a kind of disposition toward the world and toward the, the, the sort of process of, of discovery and inquiry. 
And that's a very interesting thesis to me. The reason I winced when I read that passage is because, you know, reading modern as um, the condition that we're still in, it's not at all clear to me that what the physical scientists are doing is still engaging with that project, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. So it's helpful for me to think of this as a window of opportunity that closed with the world wars. Yeah, yeah, and then the question the question would be, uh, what are we doing now, <laughs> right? Like, um, you know, because it, it really does seem. Um, I mean, he 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 puts this he puts this in very strong language. There's, there's a paragraph toward the end where he where he writes specifically about the closing of culture. Um, I'm find exactly where it is. Right, yeah, I, I, I want to read this passage towards from the end of the thing, because um, he starts to right he starts to question uh, whether this uh, early modern obsession with the archaic world was a good thing or not, mm-hmm. right? And he he sort of because um, he sounds really uh, is sort of emphatic about it when he first writes when he writes about it toward the beginning of the essay, and then he he sort of loses um, he loses that 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 emphatic quality kind of towards the end. And he asks a question, he says, whether indeed the century sense of the archaic serves to alleviate our alienation from what was most, what was once most familiar, or whether it put our alienation into even starker contrast to ages in which we romantically suppose man to have lived more harmoniously and congenially with his gods and with nature, it is too early to say. Certainly, it has deepened our tragic sense of the world and set us on a search to know what the beginning, what the beginnings of our culture were. Only our age has prepared itself to feel the significance of an engraved ox rib 230,000 years old or to create and respond to a painting like Picasso's Guernica executed in allusion to the style of Aragnosian reindeer hunters of 50,000 years ago. On the other hand, our search for the archaic may have contributed to our being even more lost. For the search is for the moment now over in the arts and our poets are gypsies camping in ruins once again. Persephone and Orpheus have reverted to footnotes in anthologies. The classic sense of the city perished rather than revived in the Renaissance of, Renaissance of 1910, which had spent its initial energies by 1914, was exhausted by 1939, the year of the publication of Finnegan's Wake, and of the beginning of the second destruction of the world in 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I messaged you a few weeks ago. Uh, I was on a car ride back from Tennessee, and it was dark, and the moon was really big. Um, and I was thinking about the enormity of the shift of thinking of the moon as this regular fixed um, self-moving body that has this influence on the sublunary sphere to thinking of the moon and the rest of the planets as places, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of enlargement of, of the cosmos, right? Which I think is, I think is coterminous with the, just the sorts of enlargement that he's taught, he's, he's exploring here, right? In terms of time and space, right? The, the, the discovery of the universe Right. It's like people talk about it with excitement. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. It's I can't help but think that it right. Like thinking of, of the planets as frontiers that we have to that we're, we're compelled to go discover in order to actualize our destiny mm-hmm. um, strikes me as a deeply tragic condition. The, with the sort of discovery of uh, the magnitude of the universe, right? It becomes an impossible task that we're saddled with. Um, I can't imagine now thinking that way about our task as a species and like um, feeling excited about it, right? It, it has to be a, it's a dark thought. Yeah, and I mean, 
I guess it's, it's also worth saying that like all of these guys that Davenport is celebrating as you know, the sort of early clairvoyance of this world kind of blooming on the horizon, uh, we're all extremely pessimistic, mm-hmm. right? Pound, Elliot, Joyce, Charles Olson, like he, he, um, he talks about Melville a little bit, who is an extraordinarily pessimistic guy, although, you know, tempered temper with the kind of optimism of, of the eternal, but he thought that, you know, that the world of men was, was careening towards catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Hannah, Hannah Arendt writes really great stuff about our obsession with space travel. Um, and I think I, I, I sort of wonder what Davenport would make of this kind of thing, right? Because he's very interested in the loss of the city as a, as a discrete political unit, as like, as basically the political unit. Um, and, and thus the building block of, of the thing we might call a civilization, right? So at some point in the um, early 20th century, it has to do with the invention of the automobile, but not entirely with that. Um, the city's energy becomes dissipated, right? It's sort of, um, things start to empty out. It no longer becomes the kind of world that it once was. Uh, he says that, that Joyce's Ulysses is basically tracking this kind of thing, this kind of wandering around this city that is gradually hollowing out. Right. Um, all of its life forces are being depleted. Um, and then, right, yeah, so we lose the city as a, as a political unit, and then suddenly we gain the cosmos as a, as, as a frontier, right? And, and I'm not sure these two things are, are, are disconnected, that no. we lose our sense of place close to home, and we gain a sense of place in these distant, um, potentially untravelable, or travelable only in either imagination or fantasy locations, right? That we dream of stepping foot on, you know, the sort of like single hard core of Jupiter and... Uh, we don't give a, you know, we just like don't care at all about what the structure of the city we live in looks like. People inhabit suburbs and they dream about Mars. And also, once you've set foot on, on the core of Jupiter or whatever, you haven't charted a fraction of the conceivable places mm-hmm. <laughs> that, there are, that there are to set foot on, right? Which I, I can understand a certain um, uh, excitement that comes from that. But it's, I mean, I sort of understand why people get this impression when they look at models of the size of our galaxy or whatever that they um they despair a little bit i, I don't think i don't think there's it, it's sort of inherent in that picture that we're insignificant or whatever that our our sort of moral and personal lives are insignificant but i understand why that picture impresses itself on people right it, yeah. it creates it creates a placelessness i had a, i had this experience in a physics class in high school where my uh, my physics teacher uh showed us the the carl sagan pale blue dot picture yeah. And we talked a lot about, I can't remember the name of that. There's like a um, mathematical equation where that, you know, scientists have used to determine the possibility of life on other planets. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah it's Drake, Drake equation, something like that. Is that what it is? Something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm too I'm stupid to remember. But <laughs> <laughs> I, and I was, I was, you know, far too distracted in high school to even pay attention to any of this stuff. But I remember like that one day of class of like showing us basically like the uh, mathematical potential for life existing in the universe at all so mathematically small and then showing us the picture of the earth from its distant vantage point um really did instill in me the sense of pointlessness and hopelessness um and it was it was like very much like a like a um a, a sort of epical change in my early life like i became very pessimistic and and nihilistic and so on and so forth um because my right, my perspective. This is an interesting thing. That I think this ties back to Davenport. That um, 
he's very interested in like these really basic human capacities like attention and uh perspective and uh the things we pay attention to right it's, it's like this very simple stuff and at that at that moment the you know the pale blue dot thing right i, I was like a teenager so my perspective was very worldly and very sort of you know immediate and um pointed at the you know sort of regular things that inhabit the furniture of my life you know like the uh, my family and my friends and so on and so forth and then the pale blue dot picture totally reoriented my focus right where suddenly and i I, and I think this is i think this is basically just a recapitulation of something that happened in the mid-20th century yeah, that we right. gained this utterly fictitious cosmic perspective on ourselves and our civilization um this kind of like science fiction picture of uh real life where we where we sort of pretend that we can have this cosmic outside right perspective on everything that we do and it makes us feel really lonely and um and lost right and that yeah I, I, I lived that as a teenager yeah right the experience is whiplash right from the basic experience the basic sort of perspectival experience of the world that we have from our position on it right mm -hmm. to this entirely this different one that generates the sense of our sense of of what makes things important changes or something like that um and it seems to me that right it's, it's actually not just the 20th century like it goes back to the discovery of the new world it goes back to the right it, mm -hmm. it's it's somehow this broader uh, uncovery that's happened and it, and these were all genuinely new ideas at the time right the, it was it was the idea that the, the the heavenly bodies were places was a was a new idea basically right i mean you can mm -hmm. cover previous gestures at it but but it was a new idea right the um the idea of outer space was a new idea at the time, but there's been, it seems like it's, there's, there's little work at, at reimagining what those discoveries mean. And it seems like our task now is just a technical one, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, it, we're, it's the same task that of the discovery of that the, the world was big, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, obviously people have known that the world was big for a very long time, right? But that there was another side to the world. Um, I don't know that that's entirely unrelated to the kind of modern cult of speed or whatever. Um, that they're, they're the to sort of the, the task of shrinking it. it seems like the 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 sort of Star Trek fantasy is the intellectual motivation for the technical task of trying to shrink the cosmos technologically, which is impossible, right? It's not an achievable goal. Yeah. Uh, right. Something occurred to me when you were talking about. Um the discovery of the new world and um, how all you write that this, that to some extent our current age is a break from previous ones. Right. I, I don't think that that's, I don't think it's inaccurate to say, but there is some, there is a kind of deep consistency from, from something in the past to something in the present. Right. And, and, and Davenport is even interested in this and about how our obsession with the ruins of early civilizations emerges from uh, an 18th century interest in ruins mm -hmm. albeit an interest in them that was um it, it, the, the shape of which was very different than the, the interest that we take in them right so you know the uh, 18th century artists were looking at stonehenge but they couldn't you right they would look at it and they thought it was cool but thought it was roman we look at it and think that it is really cool and think it is something else um do you did you ever read matthew walther's thing on the um 50th anniversary or I don't know what anniversary of the moon landing. You know what? I think that I did, but I can't remember the details. His, I mean, 
the, the basic take of it was that the moon landing was useless for all practical purposes. That's right, yeah. And it was useful as the fullest realization of romanticism. It was, it was an artistic success, an yeah, artistic right. victory, and not a technical victory at all. And so there's like there's this kind of crazy thing, which is like, um, and I think this basically justifies the argument you you know that they just made about how basically all that is in front of us now is a kind of like um, a technical problem, but it's a technical problem to realize um, a vision of the world that's made. I mean, I just I sort of throw this out as a possibility that like began with romanticism that we're sort of stuck in we're stuck in this like romantic sort of, you know, Voyager above the Sea of Fog sort of vision right. of things. Except the well, Sea of is Fog thing, is not right? a cosmos. This is, this is the notion of Faustian man, right? Like, that this, yeah. this, this is exactly the condition we're in, right? Which is the, the will to transgress or something. Yeah, and, and the, the possibility of transgression is the technical task. So we have, right. the, we have the constant longing for, for new, new vantage points over which to cast our gaze and to feel the, the sublime sort of shaking our soul and to feel the sense of power that comes with, um, you know, standing at the top of the precipice of, you know, wherever it happens to be. Um, except that now, rather than, right, we've, st we've, st we've stood on the edge of enough mountains, um, although I guess uh, we haven't done enough yoga poses at the top of them yet, so... <laughs> We've really got to carry that 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 Instagram art form uh, all the way <laughs> forward. Um, but but now yeah now we have to we have to construct these uh, these really like um, uh, we, we've got to carry out these crazy technical tasks of creating you know artificial human environments so that we can stand over top of precipices on Mars. Right. Um, uh, basically, all all of um, our entire age right now is pointing towards the realization of the sort of romantic spirit in the form of Instagram women doing yoga poses <laughs> on mountains on Mars. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, and you mentioned that, you know, how, how tragic this is, right. That no matter how far we get out into space, no matter how many planets we step on, there's always going to be more, but the problem is that we're, we've lost. So we still inhabit tragedy, but we've lost the sense for the tragic. And that's one of the things that Davenport, um, is very interested in. And, and, and one of the things that every single one of the writers that he's interested in is interested in, right? Pound is very much concerned with um, the sort of loss of the gods, right? Um, yeah. It has this very weird pagan term, but for him, the loss of the gods is, in, is in really, really a loss of the human place among things. Um, yeah. That the, the sense of the sort of permanent fragility and contingency yeah. of human life right. um, has become forgotten right it's really just a matter of forgetting yeah right right nothing is lost i mean this is a crazy thing for like for pound the gods are still there they've just been forgotten right, right. yeah uh davenport sort of muses on on the possibilities available in in von leeuwenhoek the, mm -hmm. the the possibilities that are present in the discovery that um we're surrounded by animalcules right then and, and that were mm -hmm. that you know uh liveliness of of matter um, in the modern paradigm, right, is it, it could sort of recover a kind of belief in the, the that that things are gods, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 you know, both you and I are really invested in Spangler um, as being a really interesting uh, and very serious thinker about the shape of history. Yeah. Um, 
But Davenport, I think, you know, Davenport comes away from this with this very sort of counter Spenglerian uh, conclusion. He's, I mean, he's, he, he very much thinks that there's, you know, that, you know, the idea of decline is not crazy, right? That like things get worse, that ages, some ages are worse than other ages. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't, but he also seems to think that history in a certain sense is like not real. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, just, that like, yeah. that it's not, that we're not locked into a, into a, there's no process, right? There's no, there's no unfolding process. There's just humans and attention and the things that we make and build right. and like, and that's kind of it. And so like present within that, there's always the possibility of a kind of renewal um, that Spengler very explicitly denies. Right. 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 For Spengler, right, the solution to this problem of tragedy is to just recover the love of fate. Right, Amor Fati. We'll we'll just mm -hmm. resign ourselves to it nobly. The fact that our fundamental character is the sort of self destruction at the hand of techniques. Um, but yeah, I, I don't get that in Davenport at all. Yeah, he Davenport seems to think that like basically, I mean, he, you know, he doesn't say this in so many words, but right with the, with the sentiment, for instance, that Niels Bohr is very much our or dem, Democritus and Wittgenstein is very much our Heraclitus that like the the entire landscape of history has been open has, has sort of been cracked open to us with the discovery of the, of the archaic world right. and to think that we're sort of locked in a certain you know unfolding process that you know has a certain type of goal or something like that after the recovery of the archaic world would be crazy right right and something about like the the uncovering of all of this you know prehistorical um potential um, this pre-civilizational potential, I think, even even more importantly, um, that we get to see something about like that you know bare human life at the beginnings of things still made art, and bare human life at the beginnings at the beginnings of things still had a sense for beauty, right? You know, and 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 that seems and that really seems to be something that you know Davenport draws out of that, the idea that you know there's no you know like ages are a helpful sort of categorical mechanism, right? To talk, to speak of an age, but there's nothing like real in there, right? Um, it's not like we're, we're not stuck in an age. We, we you know, if, if, and if we are stuck in an age, it's just because we, we've forgotten something. We're not using our attention in the right way, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a beautiful insight. And that's why I find, that's why I think this, this essay is so beautiful is because it, Yet, yet again, I mean, you know, as somebody, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly pulling my hair out about, uh, you know, how crappy so much of the world seems to be, you know, like, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we, we all think this, like, <laughs> this is yeah. a crazy sentiment. You and I uh, talk about the age a lot. We do. And I, I always tell myself, you know, every time I sort of use it, I sort of wonder what I wonder what I mean. Um, <laughs> and, and. You know, in my in my more pessimistic moments, I feel this very Spenglerian sort of fatalism mm -hmm. um, that the only that that you know there's no there's no real task. The task is just kind of to resign yourself, like sort of uh, to this sort of like laughing and uh, laughing yet sorrowful sort of attitude towards the um, impending uh, catastrophe or not even catastrophe, right? You know, the, 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 but the, the the impending sort of disillusion of all things. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Davenport doesn't really give us much of a, a sense of, like, a task. Mm -hmm. But he does open up um, room for, 
or if not optimism, then a kind of hope. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, the 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 energy is there. It's it's sort of latent in in the world for us to uncover by the by the power of our attention or something. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And if there is a task, it's that we need to relearn how to see. Relearn how to see, right? Yeah, which is you know the the it's the eternal task of poetry right. is to, right. to teach us how to see. So uh, white pill, as the kids say. Yes, except that my problem is that I immediately think that I'm just far too stupid to learn the lesson. <laughs> I, I can learn what the lesson is, but I can't actually carry right. it out because I'm just too broken just been, and stupid. I've spent my entire life uh, educating myself with exactly this, this self-defeating disposition. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. That's. I think that's a. I gotta take Boris to the vet. Um, great. So I think that's a, a a great place to rest. That was fantastic. I think this, but I think we've 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 opened up some interesting avenues to pursue further. Uh, I mean, do you you want to try reading Manning Techniques next? Do you want to pursue the other option? Like, what uh, what are you thinking? Um, I, I would I would love to read anything. I mean, I think this was such a successful conversation. I'm like happy yeah. to go anywhere. Man, Manning Techniques would be great because we could immediately contrast it with this. Exactly. Yeah, I think it would be cool. Um, uh, let's do it. It's yeah, it's longer, so it might take me a while, a, a little bit longer to get to, but we could um, do it in, in two or three parts. Great, love it. Okay, because it isn't the book is divided into three sections, right? Something like that. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah. just break it up. Okay, sweet. All right, I'm cool. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a little prayer that's that um, Skype <laughs> saves this conversation because it was extremely okay. good. Yeah, I agree. I enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. All right. All right. Good luck with Boris, and I hope that Caroline feels better. Thanks, buddy.